If you'd like to turn in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 24, that will be our scripture reading. Exodus chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain in twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in the accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people Israel, they beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let me pray now for the sermon. Lord, I thank you so much for this section of Exodus that we're in, and I thank you for the meditations that you and I have enjoyed together over the last week in this text. And I pray for power now, Father, and humility and boldness to be able to proclaim your word in a way that opens up our eyes and helps us to enter into the story of God Oh Lord, you have not recorded these things for us just so that we would read them and say, hey, that's a great story or whatever. But you've recorded these things for us because they really happen and they're really part of a story that you are building even to this very day in our lives. And I pray again, Lord, that by the Holy Spirit, you would make this story live for us today. Father, reveal yourself to us even as you did to these men of Israel on the mountain in that day. I trust you for this, Lord. And I give you my thanks for what you'll do. In the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Beloved, it is the destiny of every man, woman, and child who believes in Jesus Christ, who looks to him and trusts in him alone for salvation, 
for forgiveness, for communion with God. It is the destiny of every such person to see Jesus Christ face to face, to behold Him in the fullness of His glory. Right now we have to see Him by faith, then we will see Him by sight. And it is our destiny to feast with Him and to fellowship with Him and to enjoy Him, to be with Him forever and ever and ever to the glory of His name. Those are not just words for church. They're not just idealistic thoughts that sound good on a Sunday morning but have nothing to do with life. These things are the destiny of every person who believes in Jesus Christ that one day we will see Him face to face. The Apostle John wrote these words in 1 John 3, just so that you know I'm not making this stuff up. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Not servants, not subjects, children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, when Jesus comes back in all of His glory, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in in Him purifies himself as He is pure. In other words, everyone who lives with the hope of seeing Jesus Christ lives his or her life in such a way as to prepare for that moment in time. If you have the hope of seeing Jesus Christ in you, it's like a big, massive magnet that draws all of your attention toward it and causes all of your energy to go to preparing for that moment. The Apostle John also wrote in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6-9, through God was giving him a, a vision of things to come. And he wrote, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride, which is the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Oh, how I pray, how I've been praying that God would give us ears to hear, even those of us who've heard the message before, that our destiny, every man, woman, and child who believes in Jesus Christ and clings to Him and loves Him and pursues Him alone for the greatest things of this life, that our destiny is to see Him face to face and be with Him forever and ever and be transformed into His image. Oh, how right Paul was to say in Romans when he said that the light and momentary afflictions that we suffer in this life are nothing to be compared with the glory that will be revealed when we see Jesus Christ. And oh, the joy of a life that's put in the perspective of that destiny. Oh, how your life will change 
when you see your present trials and temptations and difficulties and sufferings in light of the destiny God has laid out for you. It will change everything. And how I pray that God, by His Holy Spirit, will open up our eyes today to see realities that are not of the flesh, but are indeed of the Spirit. May God give us the eyes that He gave to the Apostle John and to Moses and the 70 elders. May He allow us to see our destiny today. Some 1,300 to 1,500 years before Jesus ever walked this earth, the Lord prophesied about these things through Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons and the 70 elders of Israel. For on a particular day, And in a particular place on this earth, these men gathered together and they saw the God of Israel. They were granted an experience that only few people have ever seen. And there they feasted with Him, they ate with Him, they drank with Him, and they were not destroyed. The holy God who had every right to judge them, condemn them, destroy their lives... Rather than destroying them, by His mercy, He feasted with them and allowed them to see something of His glory. And this was a prophecy of things to come. Some days before this feast on the mountain of God, you'll remember that the Lord appeared on this mountain in the form of a thick cloud. And the Bible says that lightning was striking and thunder was rolling. And it looked like the whole top of the mountain was ablaze with fire because our God is a consuming fire. And the smoke from that fire rose high up to the sky and testified to the people that God was with them. And from and through and out of that cloud, the Lord thundered and spoke to Moses in the hearing of all the people of Israel and gave him the Ten Commandments. And you'll remember that the people were so frightened by what they saw and what they heard that they begged of Moses, please, please, you speak to us, but don't let the Lord speak to us lest we die. And I I think the reason they felt that kind of terror in their soul was because they knew that the Almighty was with them and they knew that He was holy beyond imagination and they knew that they did not measure up or match up to the greatness and might of this God. Believe me, if the God who stretched out 100 billion galaxies appeared and thundered His great voice in your presence and mine, we would shake to our souls as well. Moses tried to comfort the people of Israel. You remember that he told them, Do not fear, because the Lord God has come near to you to test you and put the fear of Him into you that you may not sin. So Moses essentially said to them, Fear and do not fear. Fear this God because He's very great, but do not fear Him because He's equally gracious. Fear this God because He's mighty and strong, but do not fear Him because He's merciful and steadfast and patient and kind. Fear this God because He is holy and He is a consuming fire, but do not fear Him because He comes close to you to consume the dross in you that you may be prepared to share in His holiness. Fear Him and do not fear Him. But the people of Israel did not receive this message. They still trembled in their hearts. And so they drew far off. And the Bible says at the end of the story we looked at last week that Moses went back up onto the mountain. And when he reached the top of the mountain, the Lord began to speak to him at length about many things. And we picked the story up then actually in chapter 20, verse 22. 
You'll see there, I'm not going to take a lot of time with the first chapter or so here, but you'll see there in the first few verses that the Lord began by reminding Moses to tell Israel that the most important thing was for Israel to be faithful to this God and to keep themselves from worshiping other gods. There was nothing more important in the mind of God than that the people of God be faithful to Him. He was faithful to them. And He was entering essentially into a marriage with them. And now He was saying, Oh, my people, remember, 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 remember to be faithful to Me above all things. Do not worship other so-called gods. Then in chapter 21, verse 1, all the way to chapter 23, about verse 18 or so, the Lord gives 42 very specific judgments about a number of matters. And I don't want to take a lot of time with this section of Exodus, but I do want to make two comments about it. First of all, if you'll read 21 through 23, it may seem strange to you that of all the things God could have spoken to Moses about on top of that mountain, that God chose to deal with practical things like this. How to treat your servants how to enact the death penalty in a number of situations, what to do when an ox gores a person or gores another ox, what to do if a child curses his father and mother. This one kind of struck me as funny, a whole section on what to do if you borrow stuff and break it or lose it, what to do if you see a donkey by the side of the road and it's hurt and it also happens to belong to somebody that you don't like and you know that. What should you do in that situation? How should you observe the Sabbath? How should you observe the feasts? How should you tithe? And a number of things like that. If you'll stop to think about this, on the one hand, it seems kind of strange that the God who appears in such great, massive, mighty, consuming fire would call Moses to himself and then address practical matters like these in a moment like this. But on the other hand, I I think that this shows us something very profound about God. There's no doubt in my mind that all of these various laws arose from particular cases that the people of Israel were facing. And what happened was people would bring their case to Moses and ask him for wisdom, and then he in turn would go to God and get wisdom, and God granted Moses that wisdom. Now this tells me that God then is not only the God of great and mighty things beyond our imagination, but He's also the God of practical everyday things like we face all the time. He's the God that thunders from the mountain with things that are unspeakable. And there are times in the Bible, beloved, I'm thinking of Revelation where God reveals things to John and says, Oh, do not write this down. It's too high. It's too exalted. It's too lifted up. It's too much. Save it for now. Do not write it down. He is the God of great and mighty and mysterious things. And He's also the God of the daily things. He's also the God that cares about the practical stuff you and I are going through. And He has wisdom for those things. God has thoughts about the way we deal with one another. He has thoughts about the way we do business with one another. He has thoughts about borrowing each other's stuff and when our animals hurt each other and all of that. He has thoughts about all this. He has wisdom about it and He wants to share it with us. So I think when you're reading practical sections of Scripture like this, and to be honest, I mean, a lot of this stuff in our culture just doesn't really seem to relate to us well. 
But, but hear this lesson. It means that God knows and cares and has wisdom about all the practical stuff of life. Oh, I find that so encouraging. I find it so meaningful because it means that God is great beyond anything I can imagine and He cares when I go to Cub or when I go to work or when I'm with my wife or when I'm in the park. He cares. He sees. He knows. He has wisdom for us. Second thing I want to point out about this section is that in my view, the Ten Commandments are a sort of summary of the whole law of God. And in turn, they're summarized by two things. You'll remember that the first four of the Ten Commandments are about our relationship with God. And I think those first four commandments are summarized by the commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second six commandments of the ten are all about how we deal with one another. And all of those are summarized in a very simple rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Don't lie. Love your neighbor as yourself. So all the law of God is summed up in the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are summed up in these two things. Love God with everything you have, and then let that overflow, and love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you're reading sections like Exodus 21, 22, and 23, the point is, don't let all the complexity of that law blind you to the simplicity of the law of God. It really does boil down to two things. Love God and love one another. Every revelation of every law was simply meant to help us work out the details of what that means. But in the end, life is very simple in God. I will tell you, it's our sin and our desires that draw us away from God that make life complicated. But in God's mind, life is very, very simple. Love me, love one another. Everything is summarized by that. This brings us to Exodus 23. If you'll turn your attention there now. I want to look at Exodus 23, starting in verse 20, going to verse 33. See a few things about this and then move our attention to, to chapter 24. Here, the Lord promises to bring Israel into the land of Canaan, provided that they meet two conditions. So you'll remember that the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt for the express purpose of bringing them into the land that He had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God had a destiny crafted for Israel before they even came into being as a nation. And now He drew them out of Egypt and they're waiting in the desert And for the first time since they've come out of Egypt and been in the desert, the Lord lifts up their eyes to their future and makes a a solemn promise that I will bring you into this land provided that you do two things. First of all, if you look at verses 20 through 22, you'll see that the Lord says that He will bring the people into the land by means of an angel sent before them and that this angel will bring them into the place that God had repaired prepared for them. All Israel was required to do was this. Listen carefully to this angel because he speaks with my voice and do what he tells you to do. Don't rebel against him. So God had provided, had prepared their destiny for them. God was now saying, I, by a powerful, mighty angel, will bring you into that destiny. All you have to do is look to me and listen. That's it. I'm telling you, beloved, from God's perspective, life is very simple. He's prepared everything for us, the destiny and the path. All we have to do is look, listen, and obey. 
Now there's been a lot of debate through the centuries about the identity of this angel. Who is this angel that God will send? Some have said that it's Joshua because the the word angel in Hebrew can just be translated messenger and it can be applied to human beings and often in the Bible it is. And since Joshua did lead the people into the promised land, since he did speak many commands of God to the people of Israel, and since the name of the Lord is in him in the sense that Jesus took Joshua's name, in Hebrew it's Yeshua, the one we know as Jesus is the same named as Joshua here in this text. And so some people have said that indeed Joshua is the angel that led them into the promised land. And I suppose that there is some potential there. Others have suggested that no, this is an angel just like we would think of as an angel. A spiritual being who has power in the heavenly places and is going to guide the people of God into the promises of God. And still others have said that this angel is more specifically Jesus Christ. And the reason people have thought that is because this angel, if you'll read those few verses, you'll see that he has power to do things that only God can do, namely forgive sins and not forgive sins. Even in the Gospels, Jesus says, who has the power to forgive sins but God? And then he forgave sins. So some people, and I'm probably most persuaded by this view, think that this angel of God was in fact Jesus Christ. I'm not dug in on that, but I tend to think that that probably was true. But whoever this angel was, it seems to me that the more important lesson for Israel and for us here in this text is this, that God had prepared their destiny fully for them. And it was a good, good destiny. And He was going to guide them along the path and do everything needed to escort them into that destiny. And all they had to do was listen and lovingly submit to Him. That was it. That was it. Now you and I know that Israel's not going to do that. We know that they were not able to do that. They were broken people. They were sinful people. They were unable to do the simplest things and submit to the simplest commands of God. And in a sense, the same is true for us. But there's one big difference between us and Israel. And that is that in our time, Jesus Christ has come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And He has put His Holy Spirit inside of us. And I do believe that the lesson here for Israel, therefore, applies to us. God has created our destiny for us already. And through Jesus Christ... He has provided everything we need for life and godliness in order to escort us into that destiny. All we have to do by the power of Jesus is look to Him and submit. And that is it. That's it. Life really reduces to that. Wake up in the morning, look to God, listen to God, and submit to God. Everything else is His business. This is the simplicity of life in Christ. Now you say, well, I have more to do than that. i got to go to work. i got to pay my bills. i got to do this and that. God knows about all of that. He knows. Our first and really our only duty is to look to Him and let Him guide us into the destiny He's already prepared for us. Second thing the Lord required from Israel, you'll see in verses 23 through 33, is that when they came into the promised land, they were not to enter into the people's way of life. And more specifically, they were to ensure not to begin worshiping the people's gods. So God has called even us to go into the world with the message of the gospel, but we go with a great warning. And it says, be in the world, but not of the world. 
Go into this world and share the gospel with all the nations, but do not give in to their way of life. Do not become like them. Do not worship their gods. Be faithful to me. Do not cheat on me. I have been faithful to you, O Israel. I have been faithful to you, O church. And now, when I bring you into your destiny, do not be unfaithful to me. And the Lord promises in these verses that if they would only be faithful, He would cause them to be fruitful in everything that they did. He said, when you come into this promised land, you're this new, little, weak, slave nation, and I'm sending you into a land where there are already developed nations, and what I'm telling you is go in there and take the land over. They're developed militarily and otherwise. This is a big thing to ask a slave nation to do this. But God says, if you'll be faithful to me, I will send out a terror before you. I will cause the people to tremble at you. And I will drive them out of the land. I will cause you to be victorious. I will cause you to be successful. All you have to do is be faithful to me. Be faithful to me. And I do believe, beloved, that the same principle remains to this day. I do believe that as we cling to Jesus Christ by His grace and power, and this little church who's trying to mobilize ourselves to go out into this world and share the Gospel, as we do this, if we're faithful to God, He will cause the forces of darkness to tremble in terror, and they will give way. He will drive them out, and we will see people come to Christ. We'll see it happen. He is our Lord and God. He is the one who stretched out the galaxies. And He says, listen, if you will cling to Me, I will be your victory. That's the lesson. And I don't think it just applies to Israel. I think that it applies to us as well. This brings us to Exodus 24. In the heart of what's on my heart today, the Lord, all this time, everything that I've just been speaking, He's been speaking directly and only to Moses at this point. And at the beginning of 24, you'll see there that when the Lord finished, He instructed Moses to go down the mountain to gather Aaron and his sons, Nahab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel so that they could worship the Lord from afar, as it were. And I, I take that to mean that they came together to worship God in a place where the people could not go but Moses didn't take them to the top of the mountain. Probably they set up uh, some kind of feast near the bottom of the mountain and they worshiped the Lord. So at this point, God's instructing him to do this. As Moses, being an obedient man of God, he did exactly what the Lord asked him to do. It's one thing I hope that you're noticing as we're looking at his life and I hope that we all learn to emulate. God spoke and Moses just did. He just submitted. I love that about him. I wish that I was more like him. He descended the mountain. He told all the people of Israel everything that God had just spoken to him from chapter 20, verse 22, all the way up to chapter 24. And when the people heard these words, they replied with one voice for the second time. They said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They were agreeing to enter into a covenant relationship with God, beloved. They were essentially, I told you last week, it's like God was proposing marriage. Israel is accepting the proposal and they're getting married. They're entering into a very serious and significant covenant. Then the Bible says that Moses wrote down all of the words of the Lord, which is significant for us 
because it does give us some evidence of what we believe that Moses wrote the majority of the first five books of the Bible. And it was very significant for them because now in writing was recorded all the details of the thing to which Israel and God had obligated themselves. This was now a written contract. And essentially it was signed by the Lord as we will see in some time. The next day after scribing all of these things down, The Bible says that Moses rose very early in the morning and he built a big altar at the base of the mountain and he built 12 pillars, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel there as well. And then he asked some of the young men of Israel to take some oxen and to go to that altar and to sacrifice them to the God of Israel. And Moses took of the blood of those oxen and he put half of it in a basin and the other half he threw against the altar And then with that, he read the words of the book of the covenant to the people of Israel. He read all of the words. And now for a third time, they obligate themselves. You'll see there, it says, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. With this third affirmation of the covenant, Moses now did something extremely, eternally significant. He took some of the blood from the basin, And he actually threw it on the people. And then he said this in verse 8. He said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So the covenant was sealed in blood. Remember that. With that, Moses took Aaron and Nahab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel and they went to some point on the mountain, probably near the base of the mountain, And they were granted an experience that only a handful of human beings in the history of the world has ever experienced. Namely, they were given eyes to see and the Bible says they saw the God of Israel. And the Bible also says in other places that no one has ever seen God. And so many of the commentators that I read this week said probably what they saw is some vision Or, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus Christ Himself is the radiance of the glory of God. And it's possible that they did see a physical, visible manifestation of Jesus. I don't know exactly what it was about, but what I know is that these handful of men actually gained eyes to see and they saw the glory of the God of Israel. And the strangest thing is that they said, they reported, that when they looked, there was something like a a pavement under his feet, if you will. And the pavement was bluish, like sapphire stone, but it was as clear as the sky. And I must confess to you that I really don't understand the significance of this pavement. It's not only here, but it's in other places. When others had visions of God, they saw a a similar thing. I don't really understand what it means. It's something I want to press into with God, see if I can't gain some wisdom at some point. But for now, what I find most moving is that the particulars of the vision that they saw matches the vision of what others saw when they were granted the eyes to see the glory of God. Now we may take for granted that different people in the Bible saw a vision of God and and their visions matched. After all, we have the Bible in one book. This is a small version of it, but the whole Bible is in here. All 66 books, all 1189 chapters, and we look at it and it, it just looks like one book. So it's not a big deal to us that it all kind of matches. But you know what? It is a big deal. 
This Bible is actually 66 different books written by over 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years. So obviously, they didn't all know each other. And no, they didn't all have access to one another's writings. They did not. The God of Israel was dealing with man after man after man. And when you compare the visions of Moses and these men with Isaiah and Ezekiel and the Apostle John and others who had visions of the glory of God, they saw very similar things. So I don't know what this pavement's all about, but I'll tell you, the similarity of all the visions of the God of Israel lent credibility to those visions. And these men saw, not by faith, but by sight, they saw the glory of God. Oh, what a privileged position that they had in that day. And not only did these men see something astounding, But the Bible says that they ate with Him and they drank with Him. They fellowshiped with Him. They dined with Him. They feasted with Him. Oh, beloved, they entered into a kind of of fellowship with God that's beyond imagination. Imagine going over to someone's house who you respect greatly. I know many of us respect John Piper. Just imagine going into his house and the sense of privilege you would have sitting at his table and feasting and enjoying God together. Oh, that's nothing compared to the joy of sitting at a table and feasting with God Almighty and having eyes to actually see Him. Every first Sunday of the month, we, we feast on an agape meal downstairs. And this really is the idea of that meal, that we're feasting together with God. But never once on any of those Sundays have I seen the glory of Jesus physically. But these men, that's what they saw. And this feast was not just about itself. It was pointing beyond itself toward the consummation of all things. It was pointing to a feast that God had prepared from before the foundation of the world. I put up on the screen here, Matthew chapter 26. I want to read just a few verses. And he, Jesus Christ, took a cup. And when he had given thanks to the Father, he handed it to them, to his disciples. And he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now you can see for yourself that these words are almost a perfect repetition of what Moses had said to the people of Israel. And there's no doubt in my mind that when Jesus Christ spoke those words, He knew exactly what He was doing. In His mind, the feast of Exodus 24 was there, and He spoke to His disciples in almost the precise words because He was trying to make the connection. Moses had sealed the first covenant with the blood of oxen. Jesus Christ now was sealing the new covenant with His own blood. And though He didn't literally sprinkle His disciples with the blood, He did something that I think is much more profound. He gave it to them in the form of a symbol of a cup of wine, and He had them drink it and put His blood inside of them. So the first covenant is sealed with blood from the outside, if you were. It's sprinkled on the body and has to work its way in. The second covenant is sealed with the infinitely valuable blood of Jesus Christ. And it's put on the inside of our souls. And it transforms from the inside out. It's much more profound, beloved. And you'll notice another thing missing in Jesus' interaction with His disciples. He never asked them to confirm the covenant on their side. He never asked them to use the words, whatever you have said, we will do. And you know why? He knew that they couldn't do it. 
Israel said, whatever you say, we will do. But they did not. They failed and they failed and they failed and they failed and they failed. Jesus Christ came to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He came to seal this covenant in His blood and to put His blood inside of us to transform us from the inside out and make us to be like Him. This is a new covenant with new rules, if you will. And believe me, Jesus had Exodus 24 firmly in His mind, not only with regard to the blood, but also with regard to the feast. Look at verse 29 up here on the screen. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, this cup of wine that's in my hand. I will not drink of it again until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So do you see that the Lord is trying to lift up His disciples' eyes and now our eyes to a feast that is going to consummate all the history of the world. And He's saying that this feast we're having now is pointing toward another feast. And it's clear to me in my mind that Jesus had Exodus 24 in His mind and he saw that that feast connected to the Last Supper and the Last Supper connected to the final feast. Now here's the point. If all of that was in Jesus' mind in His day, believe me, all of this was in the mind of God the Father on the day when this feast with the people of Israel actually happened. I've been telling you over and over again in Genesis and Exodus, beloved, the Gospel of Jesus is not plan B in the mind of God. He's always had the life death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and the final consummation of all things in Christ. He's always had that in his mind. And he's driven everything in history toward the particular point of Jesus. He's always done that. And here in Exodus 24 is just another very clear example where he's not only feasting with Israel, but he is prophesying about the entire history of the world. Believe me, that's true. That's true. So when these men gathered together on the mountain that day and saw what they saw and heard what they heard and feasted as they feasted, they had no idea what they were seeing and hearing and doing. They had no idea that they were pointing toward the day when the Messiah would come and confirm the covenant with His blood. They had no idea that they were pointing toward the day when the Messiah would come again and gather His bride from every tribe and tongue and nation on this earth and gather with them in a great great feast that would last forever and ever and ever. After this prophetic feast had come to an end, the Lord called Moses back up onto the top of the mountain alone. And so he took Joshua with him for a spell and he commanded the elders of Israel to obey Aaron and his brother-in-law, Hur. And with that, Moses went onto the mountain, I believe by himself. I don't think he brought Joshua with him all the way up to the top. And there he went into the cloud that that at thundered with thunder and struck with lightning and looked as though it was a devouring fire. This one man of all the men went right up into the cloud and he waited day after day. And finally on the seventh day, the Lord spoke to him. And we'll talk next week about what the Lord said this next time up on the mountain. But for now, I want to leave you with that picture of the elders who feasted with the Lord. And now the Lord on top of the mountain is displaying His glory for all two million of the Israelites to see. And there they stood and waited for Moses as he was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I want to end where I began. And I want to plead with you to believe me when I say 
that the destiny of every man, woman, and child who believes in Jesus Christ and clings to Him and trusts in Him alone for salvation and forgiveness and communion with God, our destiny is to see Jesus face to face. We will behold His glory. We will be transformed into His likeness. Please believe the Apostle John when he says this. I want to read these texts one more time. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We have not come into the fullness of our destiny quite yet. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. This is our destiny. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Believe the words of the Apostle in Revelation. See what he saw. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Write it down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to the feast where we will eat and drink and see the glory of God. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Beloved, I know that you have lots of practical stuff to deal with in your life. I know that because I do too. But I want to encourage you today to let the Lord lift your eyes up and see something of your future if you believe in Jesus Christ. Because I think that if we'll see a clearer vision of our destiny, it will change the way that we see our present circumstances. It will. It will shape us. It's a good thing maybe to come to a church and hear a sermon about how to have a better family or how to reduce your stress, how to succeed at work, whatever. But I think it might be a better thing to come to a church and hear a message from the Bible, not from a preacher, but from the Bible that says, lift your eyes up and look and see what the Lord has done for you. And then come back to the practical stuff of this life and put all the practical stuff in its proper perspective. One day, the glory that will be revealed will so far outweigh the present sufferings that you will not be able to speak it and you will have to worship Him forever and ever just to tell Him how grateful you are. So let's pray about that now. Oh, Father, You are so great and so wise. I'm just breathtaking, Father, how You, about 3,500 years before today, Ask these men to come up on the mountain and do something that would point toward our destiny in Jesus Christ. Your mind and your ability to, to shape all of history towards your purposes just blows my mind, Father. It takes my breath away. 
And I thank you for this. I thank you for Exodus. I thank you for First John. I thank you for Revelation 19. I thank you for Matthew 26. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see our destiny, that we might live for your glory all the days of our lives. I trust you for this, my Father, and I give you my thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.